Nice. Um, first of all, don't uh, mind the recording gear. I, I used to have another mic that's much more subtle, but I, I sort of don't have it anymore. So I'm, I'm trying to evaluate which one is better of these like, sort of bulky mics. Uh, anyway, but I am recording this. Um, so if you, you know, have some comment about your employer or how you hate your boss, you might not want to say that, right? Because I don't want to go back and try to edit stuff. Uh, but also, this is meant to be an interactive discussion presentation. I'm not gonna just lecture for an hour about about stuff while you sit there just kind of taking it in. If you have questions, things that you're really uh, dying to know, you know, raise your hand. Let's get a discussion going. What prompted you to pick this topic? What prompted me to pick this topic? Um, so I have this course on my site. Um, if you go to drawtherbewriting.com. Uh, slash learn API doc um, and uh, yeah let's see uh, whoops let's come back here there we go I've got different sections of this course intro to rest APIs uh, documenting reference non-reference sections publishing your API documentation open API and swagger API documentation is too deep to really try to cover in one presentation so I've been focusing on different sections of the course. Um, for example, uh, while, a little while ago, I presented on OpenAPI and Swagger. Uh, before that, I did an intro one uh, that actually covered the first three sections. Um, and today, I'm going to talk about the non-reference sections. I think API documentation tends to center on the core reference endpoint requests and all the, the templates and so forth. And that's all anyone ever talks about. Um, and yet that only really covers a fraction of what API documentation um, includes. It's the easy part. It is the easy part because there's a definite, <laughs> there's a definite structure and order and way of doing it and you can use specifications to describe it. Mm -hmm. And so when you get into this non-reference content, um, not even sure what to call it. You know, is it is it a guide, a tutorial? Is this the uh, administrative, the conceptual, um, the programming guide, the user guide, the how-to guide? The, you know, it's like, it's basically, I'm defining it by what it's not, which isn't really good. But essentially, these are the guides and tutorials that complement the reference part of documentation. So some of you are probably saying, dang, I really wanted the endpoint stuff. I wanted the core, you know, I want to learn about Swagger. Okay, well, these are all recorded, so you can go on my site, you can, you can listen to them. Um, or if you're brand new to APIs and you're like, is he even going to define this acronym he's talking about? Uh, which I should probably do, application programming interface, which doesn't really do a whole lot if you've never heard of APIs. But uh, the intro intro presentation is another presentation. So we're kind of jumping into this non-reference section. Anyway, um, here's what we'll talk about. We've got about 11 different sections uh, of what we'll cover. What does non-reference content include? Overviews, it's your getting started. Authentication and authorization, status and error codes. Rate limiting and thresholds, code samples and tutorials, SDKs and sample apps, quick reference, best practices with the API, glossary, and FAQs. All right, so 
Of course, different APIs might have different needs, but in general, if you look at a lot of different API doc sites, you'll see these same sort of topics recur. And that's why I've called them out here. And a good API doc site would probably have most of these other sections. And a bad one, maybe it omits them because it's so simple they're not needed. Uh, but, but really, it will give people a map and kind of a, um, a path to follow when they're documenting APIs. Any questions, initial things you want to uh, ask about this? Okay. All right, so I already told you where to find more information. I'd rather be writing.com slash learn API doc. This, this section of my course is actually a little bit behind. I, I, I got to work on it quite a bit. So um, anyway, it's, it's coming along. Let's start with the overview. All right, the overview um, introduces what your API is. Like, what does it do? Why would somebody use it? Um, what conditions or what scenarios does it solve? A lot of times, developers are so wrapped up in the details of their endpoints that they don't stop and step back and consider that users who are coming to their API probably want the big picture. Um, about the API, and this this often gets overlooked. And yet, we're being bombarded with more and more APIs. They're coming onto the market, and a lot of them do similar things, and it's hard to know even, you know, what does this API do? So the overview really gets into this. So let's, uh, I have some examples here that I think do a good job at, our, ooh. Oops, that doesn't look like Lyft. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, here we go. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Ah, okay. technical glitch. Wonder if I. Okay, hold on. <laughs> One second. Why can't I click a link here? Uh, what is it pointing to? It's pointing to a site. All right. Well, uh, give me a second to think about this. Is this my problem or is this where I'm at? Uh, let me let me try the web version to see if I screwed something up or if um, <clears throat> so that you can also get these slides online. So let's take a look and see. Huh. All right. Give me. Uh, yikes. This has never happened to me before. Let me check something real quick. Um, in micro or giant screen here. Hmm. <clears throat> okay. Because I, re I really want to go to these, and this is going to screw everything up if I so can't. This is the code for your website? No, this is the code for the presentation. Uh -huh. um, but it's actually, actually, hold on, let me try something. Okay, I'm going to un unclip from here and see if I can just go normally to it. Because if so, it might be the projector blame it on something I else don't right think so, Tom. <laughs> no it works fine here okay <laughs> so something about being projected okay does anybody have any ideas here yeah, absolutely none okay let me see uh why would this projector is there okay let me try it again No, I'm like micro, I'm tiny now. 
Wow. That is bizarre. What are those little icons on now, the bottom right? Now, it, now it's working. Oh, good. So now if I click this guy, it goes to it. So what, what was I doing what? wrong? It goes to lift. It goes to this lift site right here. Oh, where it's tiny. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So. I just wanted to make you go crazy, that's all. But now I somehow kicked into a resolution that's tiny. We don't see a thing here. You don't see it? What? Oh, but it looks fine there, right? Okay. All right. So we'll see how this goes. The thing is, when I click open the tabs, look how small those tabs are. <laughs> okay, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it's kind of, you, you never know when you connect to a projector what's going to happen because the resolution is all crazy. But, um, all right, what a, an API. So I wanted to give an example, and here's an example from the Lyft. Uh, you probably can't even see that, so I don't know how useful this will be. But this is the overview of Lyft's API. You know, what... It, they don't even assume that you know what Lyft is. They, they start out, what is Lyft? I mean, that, that's, that's nice. And they point you to other, other resources. Um, why use Lyft as a developer? They even show you some, a link to a glossary because they're not going to assume that you know all of their terms, right? This is another cardinal sin developers commit. They just assume you know all the terms and that they're using the standard terms that everybody should know. Um, and other kinds of things here. Uh, another one from SendGrid. All right, SendGrid. What is SendGrid? All right, who is SendGrid for? These are basic questions. This is not hard to write, but people become blind to this kind of information. And as you're looking around, you, you think, ah, you know what? I need an email service to, you know, send out my campaigns. So what should I use? You've got like 15 different email campaign services, and SendGrid. Is this a is this a grid? What's a grid? Well, it tells you what the thing is about, right? So that is the number one. Um, and here's a quote from a recent article that I read called The Top 20 Reasons Startups Fail. Startups fail when they are not solving a market problem. We're not solving a, a large enough problem that we could universally serve with a scalable solution. We had great technology, great data on shopping behavior, great reputation as a thought leader, great expertise, great advisors, etc. But what we didn't have was technology or business model that solved a pain point in a scalable way. And this is, in the article, it says this is the top one why, why APIs fail. Because people, it doesn't solve a problem people need. There's no market need for the API. So when you think about the overview, the overview should address how it meets this market need. It's the number one reason why an API is going to fail. And yet, a lot of people just skip it over. You look at an API and it's like, eh, the, the introduction defines itself using the same terms and doesn't really you know, explain this market need. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's, that's not a documentation problem. I mean, if you've designed something that doesn't serve a market need, it, there's nothing you can do with the documentation to make it look like it does. You're right, you're right. You, you're, you're, you're limited. It's not like you're going to invent a need for your API and, and, and solve it. But um, what if the user doesn't understand, doesn't, doesn't recognize that you're solving the market need? He sees the API, he or she sees the API and is like, uh, does something with email. Um, why should I care about that? And maybe that market need that it solves is buried or something, you know, in, in, in some kind of unarticulated um, pro 
project product manager sort of document that never sort of never made it to the light of day. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, next next section. Getting started. I'm so happy my links work, by the way, because if not, I, I, uh, I don't know. It would have been interesting. So, the getting started part is another huge element of an API doc set. You want to help users um, figure out how to use the API. There's there's myriad sort of things they've got to do. They've got to set up their authorization. They've got to figure out how to send construct a request, putting together like a base URL and an endpoint, and how they get the uh, other sort of API keys set up. Um, now there, let's look at an, at exa an example here, um, PayPal. <clears throat> they have a whole section on getting started. Um, and they, they talk about, hey, set up your authentication, make a simple API request. You know, here's, here's some basics. They talk about, uh, they even give you a code sample you know, you should be able to copy and paste this. A lot of times, you may want to give users a, a test API key that they can just use and immediately see what they're doing. Um, you know, typically a developer uses between, somebody mentioned this once, they use between like eight to 10 APIs on a, on a website. Depends on the website, of course, but they use lots of different APIs. So they're, they're, they may be evaluating your, your your documentation and product quickly, and they want to know how how easy is this? Just give me an an example. Um, let's look at a, another one. Uh, IBM Cloud. I think this one's an ex excellent one. I guess I'm just gonna have to magnify every time. Uh, they they break it out into steps. Here's how you get started. You're gonna get an account. You're gonna find a starter service. Uh, you're going to create a project and so forth, you know, and then your next step. So they, you want to guide the user through it. And you put this right after your, um, right after your introduction. Man, I hate animated GIFs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. So naturally you never use them. No, I just had to make some <laughs> last week. Yeah, yeah, I just, I realized how spammy they seem. Uh, one thing that might be really useful as you're creating a get getting started section is this run in postman button have you um have you seen this thing called the, the the postman api network this is really quite interesting this is uh like i don't really know why they call it a network but what it is is um a list of people who are using postman in some way or another and it, it shows you usually uh some tutorial that incorporates a run in postman button Postman is a, is a GUI client that you can use to submit requests. So I've got Postman open here. And again, uh, for people who have really good vision. And you can see that you, you can sort of submit requests through here. Um, you put it into this field and so forth. Well, it can be tedious to try to, try to explain how to populate all that. So Postman developed this button that you can just click. I've embedded it right here. You can embed it on any site. Click it. Uh, let's open in Postman um, Postman app, and it's going to incorporate a bunch of endpoints and everything. They're getting rid of Postman for Chrome, right? Oh, man. Did it just? No. Okay. Did it? 
Why am I being prompted again? Open Postman app. There we go. Is this going to be glitch number two? Oh, no. Let's replace it. Okay, so I just did this earlier. It just imported this whole field here, which has some, some sample endpoints, three requests. And if I go down to here, it even imports like the description of the API and everything. But if I go down to one of these, um, I've got the request all configured. It's got headers, it's got uh, parameters, it's got everything, and it just po automatically populated it. So if you're, if you're trying to get people off the ground uh, quickly, you can put all of your requests into Postman and easily just export it as a button that you can embed into any web page. Um, and it's super, super cool because then as a user, I can go through, I can start experimenting, I can start playing with it um, and, uh, and sort of make it my own. All right. Number three, authorization and authentication. Simple difference, authorization or authentication is, are you who you say you are, the identity, right? Whereas authorization is, do you have the privileges to do this action? Um, and um, almost every API requires some kind of authentication. Oh, yeah, some kind of auth uh, authentication and authorization. Um, because without it, anybody could use your API to make a million calls. Uh, you, you wouldn't have any way to track it, to charge for it, to uh, monitor it, turn it off, right? So only the very simple APIs don't have an authorization. So this is something you will probably always have to document. Now there are a, a number of different uh, authorization <coughs> methods. Most common one for simple APIs is an API key. Um, you basically, and I can actually open this in another, let me try something. Open image in new tab. Let's see if this expands bigger. Yeah, there we go. Uh, wonder of vector graphics. Um, if you if you have an API key that you have to submit, what happens is uh, the person puts this into the request header of their call, and the the REST API checks to see if the API key is valid, and if so, it you know accepts and authorizes the call. Pretty so, simple. So your API key is it really identifies the user of the API, right? Yeah, yeah, and. and this API key, API key gets encrypted and so forth. Um, so there's more more going on there. But if I get a, what I I go to the the app's website, I say, give me an API key oh. specific to me, and they give it to you, and then you use it. No. Okay. So, uh, actually, good question. So the API key identifies usually identifies your app. You might have yeah. five different apps that are using the API. One app might be a hobby app, another might be this huge commercial app. So the API key is usually associated with the app. I don't know, everybody does it differently. So, but yeah, good, good point. All right, another method of authorization is the HMAC. Uh, this is more common in places where people are, I don't know, uh, I don't know why people use different methods. I, I believe this is more secure. Uh, HMAC, oh man, I should have, I should have refreshed my memory what it what it stands for. It's something like <laughs> hashed. Uh, somebody can look that up and tell me. Um, but basically, here's how it works. You've got a special a special key that is known only to you, and the 
the, the <clears throat> API server. And that key is used to generate a signature. So you, have, you generate a signature on your local machine using this special key known only to you and the server. And then the server receives your request. It takes your signature and decrypts it using that same signature to like uh, run the algorithm. And, and then it sees if the, the key is valid um, or the, the, the message part is valid. Or sorry, I didn't even explain that well. The message and the key combine to form the signature. Um, so is this like a private and public key, or, or how, how does, or is it the same key on both the, things? The key, yeah, the key is private. The key is private. Um, and it's going to be the same key on both. So you'd have a profile maybe that has your key stored on the server that matches your, your key locally. Um, you, you don't have to actually explain the details because it's kind of fuzzy in my mind, ex all the, the specifics. But what you do have to explain is how a user is going to generate the signature they need to submit a request. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, mentioning that it you know, uses an HMAC uh, authorization process is probably enough. But this, I believe this is used, uh, I don't know, uh, in different, different spaces. You might see it. It's not as common, actually. Yes. Okay. Let's check this. Is hash-based message authentication code. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hash-based mes message authentication code. Yeah. So you have the message, and then it's hashed using the key in an algorithm to pr provide the signature. Anyway, all right. Let's let's jump to the next one. OAuth. This is probably the most common, although um, it depends what space you're in, and. Uh, OAuth, here's how OAuth works. Oh, I do actually have a pointer. Here we go. I'm busted out. Um, OAuth, <clears throat> you use this all the time when something wants to log in with Google. It uses another resource as an identity server. Um, but you're, you've got an... Oh, nice. It doesn't... Wow. This is full of surprises. I have a... Watch this. It's red. It's gone. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Um... <laughs> that is <interesting>. <laughs> <laughs> the, your app is going to access some identity server like uh, Twitter or Google or Facebook and get an access token if you, if you are successful at logging in there. That access token is then returned and you submit that access token in your request to your API server. So you have like a separation of your identity verification with the API server. And it's much more complicated too um, to set it's up. It's a and delegation protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're delegating the uh, the verification of the identity to another service. Um, and if you have this method, this is probably more more common in like open web APIs that are that are yeah. fairly uh, well known. They they use this. See, so if you if you have in the full blown version, you have an access code which you then exchange for an access token. And then you use the access token to get to the resource. If if you've got a single page application like on your phone, then you use this this simpler version. Sounds like you've uh, documented stuff with OAuth before. Yeah. Yes, I've dived 
Yeah. Well into Olaf. How would you how would you uh, describe the process? Was it really one of the more complicated parts of the API documentation, or was it just okay normal? Or well, first of all, it's not really specific to the application. It, OAuth is a is a industry standard protocol, and everybody has to implement it more or less according to mm. the protocol. So. Uh, there's a question of how much of it is really your job to to uh, uh, document. Mm -hmm. uh, really, uh, if you're going to be an authorization server, then you have to document your uh, your two main uh, uh, endpoints: your uh, your authorization endpoint and your token endpoint. Yeah. But if you're if you're just working with an app, there's really nothing to document uh, so much because it's kind of under the covers built in. Okay, okay. Yeah, so so if it's uh, just following a standard <coughs> industry process, you probably don't have as much to document. I, the sites that I've been browsing have different sort of levels of detail they, they provide about, about OAuth. And uh, anyway, all right. So actually, let's, let's take a look at one of these sites um, just to give you an idea of what's involved. Uh, so Dropbox, I believe I, come on, I know I, I, oh, there we go. I know I linked to, did I not link to? Oh, there we go, authorization. Um, come on, come on, come on, ah. All right, I've lost, there we go. Um, it talks about, uh, how you authorize things. It talks briefly about the flow, the token call, and it, it points you to a, uh, section 1.3 of the spec, as Richard is saying, you know, if you want more, more details. Um, but they, they kind of cover this, and different sites have, have more. It talks about this structure, uh, this authorization, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't want to hammer that one to details, hammer that one to death. Uh, Let's jump over to status and error codes. So every time you, you go to any web address, there is actually a status code sent back. If it's a successful return of information, it's, it gives you a status code of 200. Uh, but all the time, in many cases, when you're submitting these requests, uh, if you have a bad parameter, if you have something mistyped, if there's no data, you could get all kinds of different responses. It could be, uh, it's not found, it's forbidden, there's an error, it's over the limit. You know, there's there's could be dozens of different status and error codes returned. Isn't this mostly part of the reference documentation? Uh, okay, so initially I had this in the reference documentation, but they tend to be common across all the reference docs, so they're often extracted into just a more general topic for the API. Because I mean, your error codes are your status and error codes are rarely unique to the to the specific endpoint. Well, different endpoints use different ones of these. I mean, they may mostly may use OK, if you mm. know, but uh, forbidden may be specific to some endpoints, could, could but not be. others. And, and sure, if it is specific to one, uh, definitely go for that. Let's take a look at an example here. Twitter. See, they have their status codes. Um, listed here under the basics and I believe it would be a good practice under each like request 
to link to this. Although some some sites just embed the status codes directly into each endpoint, or maybe they just call out a few that are are specific to that request. Like you've got too many widgets that you're calling or something. Um, but here there's quite a few, right? Um, everything from bad requests to uh, gone. Haven't seen that one before. Yeah. Enhance your calm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is this is kind of comical. I I don't know if they. I don't think enhance your calm is a standard one. See, there's 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 uh, standard status codes. If you just Google, if you if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see like 200 different status codes, or I don't know how many, but a lot of different status codes that are just universal, like the 400, right? You, people don't just make up that and say, let me call a bad request. 5,360. No, they, they use a standard one. But for the non-standard, like gone or enhance your calm, I, I think. I believe. Yeah? I believe that's a reference. Enhance yeah. your calm is a reference? 420. It's 420. It's, but this is a standard one you're saying? Yeah. No, no, no. I, it's a pun. Definitely non-standard. Oh, it's a it's reference a to something. Oh, I see. It's a reference to weed. Enhance your calm, 420. It's, that's a pun. You're right, you're right. right it's April 20th. I didn't even see that. Yeah, yeah. No, Thank I, you. I think that's a pun. It's like they, marijuana it's day, right? It's standard but I think that that is an inside joke. Thank you for pointing that out. Now I feel dumb for missing no, it. No, no, okay. no, no. It's, it's, it's not. It's, it is not dumb of you. It is uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's uh, that's your developer humor right there, yeah. right in the status code. <laughs> you got to make use of that. Four twenty. Anyway. Um, but if you looked for uh, for a particular endpoint, it wouldn't list all of those. It would list some of them. If you if you looked, yeah, yeah. It depends on how the people decided to do it. I don't think it would be good to list them on every single request because then it bloats the amount of information in the API, right? It's well, like, each. For any particular endpoint, there's probably only one or two relevant. Yeah. Now, here's something I want to call out, though. These status codes are supposed to help recover, help users recover from failure. But first, they have to tell them why the request failed. Was it a bad parameter? Did you, did you, uh, is it because your information is wrong? Like, first of all, identify, it troubleshoots right there. This is what's wrong. But then you can go an extra step and be like, and here's how you recover from this. Rarely do you ever find any kind of message that actually helps the user recover from it. And, and sometimes it's probably not essential. Um, man, now, I, you know, I really want to figure out what conditions trigger a 420 error on the, tr on the Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> I was wondering. Well, it, rate it, limiting? it told okay. you, you were, it, it, said, it said up there, you were rate limited oh, okay. and you were exceeding yeah. your rate. That's right. Okay, so you. you down. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder, there's probably Easter eggs in a lot of APIs. Who knows yeah. what stuff you pull back. At any rate, when you're documenting an API, th this is often, um, stuff that you, you don't run across because it's not part of the happy path. People just assume that developers always make the, the requests that return the right information. Well, you'll have to dig around for these, figure out what they are, and document them. This, this requires a lot of infrastructure. If you really want, first of all, to have the request uh, codes uh, be um, uh, useful, uh, to tell you really what's gone wrong, mm -hmm and to tell you what you can do next, uh, 
it, it's it's not a documentation problem purely. It's, it's more a technical problem. You need to build infrastructure that that lets you say click on a on a, one of these codes that you got back and and get to more information and stuff like well, that. You're right. You're right. That that like trying to package in uh, a lot of troubleshooting info into that code and the response is too much. But in the documentation, you can explain, hey, you got a bad request. Check to make sure that you didn't, you know, uh, munch your your JSON or something. Check to make sure that uh, the JSON in the body request parameter is well formed or something. Like you can give troubleshooting around these. Um, well, then I and I don't have to ping this thing in with different bad inputs in order to figure out what kind of errors I'm going to get back. You've documented them so as a developer I could say, okay, I could treat these as exceptions if I get that. And I know what they're going to be because you've, yeah. you've, you've told me what, are, what they are in your API as opposed to I've got to go over the whole HTTP yeah. protocol and get each it, one of these uh, error codes. And it, I think a, one sign of a good API are specific error codes if it's bad api if it just gives you like bad requests on everything you know it's like completely unhelpful um it, <laughs> the person who made that was probably laughing they're like this this covers this could cover every scenario um well for <laughs> the 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 ones divisible by 100 are just defined categories oh Oh, so, so there's a like logic. 200 to is oh, okay. okay. 400 bad request, but hmm. 404 tells you what kind of bad request, huh. or 403 tells you what kind of bad request. Look at that. Now I'm now I'm learning something. Yeah. See. <laughs> where I work, I'm being called in um, more and more to talk about your cards. Yeah. And I suggest things, and they haven't thought of it. Yeah. And so you can kind of add value. Yeah. If you just have an idea of what they need to do to fix it, you know, or what they, or just provoking thought, I mean. Yeah. This is sort of interesting because on my, one of my last gigs I was doing the API documentation for encryption software <sighs> and how you would set up your own encrypting, uh, your own encrypting API to go behind the scenes to encrypt certain fields within database let's say and we had developed our own air codes that were sort of cryptic yeah and cryptic yes. you yeah. might say yeah and 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 i kind of we had the 404 you know not found yeah. uh we that's common you see that all the time right yeah. not found yeah. the web page is not found but we had some that were almost as bizarre as the uh enhancer column <laughs> um and as a tech writer, I looked at it and I, I had to ask, do you really want to say that? And the guy said, yeah, we got to say that. And I said, okay. And I can't talk more about it because it's encryption. And it's just bizarre yeah. working with that group. So uh, just let me summarize this for the recording. So basically, people are saying that you can contribute a lot to these error codes. They're often sort of overlooked and they're cryptic, but you can make them clear. You can suggest refinement, uh, more better information in this space. Um, thank you. All right. Uh, uh, let me jump over to another big topic, rate limiting and thresholds. Um, I started out in Silicon Valley working for a gamification company, which then later went, got bought up by some, some other company. 
And I remember one day there was like uh, one of these, um, I don't know if it was a database or one, one of these IT ops kind of programmers who was going crazy because one of the users had implemented the request in a way that every time like the app loaded or every time something happened, it would send like a new request. And as a result, it was sending like millions of requests a day and it was bringing down the whole system. And so he had to like identify it and shut off that, that person's account. And uh, th this goes to something called rate limiting and throttling and, and thresholds. People have to know how many requests they can make a day. Um, there's, a, there's a website that I have in my tutorial on like weather, if you want to know what the weather is. Well, um, how many times can you make that request a day? If I embed a weather widget on my site and I get uh, 1,500 visits a day, so it's going make, to make a request, maybe multiple requests to the API for every visit, am I going to be bankrupt by the end of the week? Um, you, or can, <laughs> you can cache them and then you're... Your users can just see the cached version. And that would be another another tutorial. How do I cache the request yeah. when it hasn't changed? Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is this is something you want to cover. This is probably getting into the marketing realm, right? How many calls per plan and like how much do you get charged if you go over and things like that. But you should at least link to it and make people aware of what happens when they cross the threshold. Do they suddenly uh, get charged a ton? That was a a constant concern. Um, or do they get throttled or, you know, stopped? Yeah. Or like, hey, my, my site stopped working. And maybe they implemented it, implemented it in a way that, like, when you get throttled, their whole site is slow. So it could lead to a tutorial. All right. Uh, speaking of tutorials, code samples and tutorials. Um, let me just pop this out into another tab so you get the full, full view. Uh, Code tutorials are pretty broad, and they encompass a lot of different things. But just because you have a set of endpoint requests or endpoint endpoints, doesn't mean that developers know how to use them together. A lot of times, you have to skillfully use one endpoint that gets information from another, and then you plug that response back into this other endpoint. Or maybe you have to set something up first before an endpoint even works. Um, it's really only the very simple. APIs that are completely kind of straightforward just looking at the reference content. Um, well, I believe I have a quote here. Uh, in the six pillars of complete developer documentation, an article on Programmable Web, person says, while a developer's guide should walk a developer through the basic usage of an API and its functionality, it can't cover every possible use of that API in a coherent way. That is where articles and tutorials come in to teach developers tangential or specialized uses of an API, like combining it with another service framework or API. So let's say you're, uh, let's kill some of these other tabs. Um, let's say your, your API has 20 different endpoints. Well, how many, in how many ways can those endpoints be uh, combined in different, in different permutations for different scenarios? Uh, it, it, it's almost infinite. And that's why a lot of times people don't even want to try the, the tutorials. You don't have these how-tos because it's like, well, a developer could use the API however he or she wants. Uh, you call this, you get that, you mix it in here. But there's going to be common scenarios, and you want to usually provide a few tutorials that have some code samples that show this, this whole um, scenario. So when you're talking about a tutorial here, you're talking about 
walking them through a specific example. Yeah. As opposed, say, to teaching them how to play around with it and make their own make choices that you haven't anticipated. Right, right. I'm I'm saying let's let's cover an actual scenario, uh, and let's let me show an example here of what I'm talking about. Let's see if this guy. Um, eh. You know what? Probably not the best one. Let me try one more. Twilio. Oh, Twilio's got some interesting stuff. I think they, they told me once they were like reinventing the way they do documentation. Oh, yeah. And um, oh, I don't have spare time. Okay. Um, first of all, getting to this is interesting. But they have this whole quick start. And you start on this page. And you go through a number of things, and then you, you kind of skip down to more. You get the next section, kind of walks you through this. You skip down to more, and it almost kind of guides you through this whole process in these collapsible sections. Um, and they've got a whole series of tutorials like this. It's really quite, a, quite interesting. I guess you can jump over here using this left-hand side. But it's really an end-to-end -end sort of display of information. You've got code samples here on the right and so forth. But uh, it's kind of an interesting approach. Um, so do you have any idea what tools they use? Like here you've got a tab for PHP, and you've got a, a, a parallel tab for Java, and a parallel tab for JavaScript or whatever. And is it all, is it single sourced in some way? Or is it are they all just separate ad hoc? Or how does that work? What is Twilio's tooling? I don't know. I have a whole other presentation on tooling, and I think most of the most of the API doc sites for the big houses will probably have some kind of custom tooling. They may use a static site generator, or they may just uh, have direct kind of code that they're hacking together. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I've seen different descriptions of solutions, but really. I don't think there's anything here you couldn't do with just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Um, you kind of you kind of have to have some web skills or access to somebody with web skills to design something like this, right? You, this is not something that uh, most tech writers are going to just easily design. Um, but if you have if you're working with a UX designer and they've got something like this. What you could do is then wire it up in, into a static site generator like Jekyll, Hugo, something else to sort of use includes and reuse content and build it in a more uh, sustainable way. All right. Uh, there, there, see these other links, you know, uh, for more examples? They're really some great ones. MailChimp, <laughs> IBM, they've got excellent things. You don't, um, you don't use a AWS for any of your examples. Uh, no, it's coming up here. Uh, now, keep in mind, I'm not on the AWS team. I'm an App Store. Um, okay. Totally separate, almost a separate world, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> See, look, I, I, they're coming up. Don't worry. I've got a, an example. Um, SDKs and sample apps. This is one of the most challenging aspects um, because SDKs and sample apps... Uh, suddenly throw you into this world of another programming language. Let's say that you've got, okay, so the idea of an API is that it's language agnostic. You can make the calls in any, using curl, you know, it's not tied to like Java or PHP. But when a developer has to implement that API, he or she then has to 
make that make those requests and use that API within the context of a specific language. So people develop SDKs that complement the API. An SDK is Software Development Kit, and essentially it's um, it's tooling for users in a specific language and framework to use that API. So you could have an Android SDK that maybe uses the API to build an Android app for your phone, right? And uh, Android is actually Java-based. Uh, but you might have a Java SDK um, or Node.js app or Ruby or like, countless others. And as a tech writer, yeah, you actually have to document them. But uh, fortunately, it's not as if you will be expected to know uh, the details. All you really have to do is explain how to build it. Uh, a lot of times these sample apps and SDKs have code comments from developers. Um, so if you explain kind of what the sample app or the SDK offers and how to build it and some other details at a high level, um, that's usually sufficient. And maybe you get developers to, to explain more of the de details. The idea is that if somebody wants an Android SDK, they're already an Android developer and don't need a lot of explanation. Um, if, they are, if they're a Node.js developer, they know Node.js, and so you shouldn't have to like you know explain it. So when you say SDK here, we're really just talking about libraries for using your app in that environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be like it could be the SDK term is actually pretty broad, but yeah, it's essentially libraries and other code you need to make use of the API in a special framework or language, particular framework or language. Um, I worked at a, one company that had a C++, Java, and PHP SDK that accompanied the API. And I tried to learn all three of the languages at once, and my brain like, <laughs> short-circuited. And really, at the end of the day, it wasn't necessary. It was just like, hey, here's the SDK, and here's how I, I, I was able to install it. We had mobile ones, too, Android, iOS. Um, there's only so much you can really... Uh, cover. Um, so this is this is part. This is one area where in developer doc you have to collaborate with engineers because in order to get information, maybe you want to provide a lot of information. You know, why are you why are you coding this SDK in the way you're doing it? You know that kind of stuff. You're going to have to extract information from engineers, make sense of it, make it clear, uh, use the right lingo. Uh, so it's really a big challenge. Look, I have a link to the Amazon ones right here. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, just let me. They, AWS, they, they do things really well, in my opinion. They're kind of like our model documentation group at Amazon. Um, and they have a whole bunch of SDKs here where they've got them listed. Notice they have a very, very predictable pattern. And, and this is something I, we admire about them is that uh, from one product to another, it follows the same organization, naming schemes, pattern is very easy when you have predictability like that. So, all right. Um, and do they do that by hand or do they have some, some tool that lets them maintain that parallelism? Uh, I don't know the details of their process. I know that some, some, I think they have a modified version of DocBook, uh, so it's got an XML backend for some. But they also have a, a Sphinx group that then transitioned into their own like custom Sphinx tool uh, for more like the Java SDK type docs. Um, yeah. All right, quick reference. 
this is really going above and beyond the Call of Duty, but if you can provide one of these, people love you for it. Um, even before I got into developer documentation, I made a quick reference guide for an app, and literally, literally the program manager who saw it almost started to cry. He was so happy. Uh, <laughs> it was like, one page, somebody finally gets it. You know, they're not giving me oodles of pages. Well, quick reference doesn't necessarily uh, condense all of your documentation into one page and you throw the rest away, right? But it provides this, this easy way to, to refer to things. Um, my very favorite quick reference guide is this one from Shopify. Now, granted, it's not an API, but it is awesome. Uh, so this is Shopify is they make uh, like uh, templates for online stores and they use liquid. So liquid is a scripting language. And if you're using it and you're like, oh, man, what is that case tag? You click this down, you see a little example. You can really make use of this stuff. Um, and uh, some of it more than others, but it's just really well done. It's nice. I actually don't use it that much, even though I do a lot of stuff in Liquid now that I think of it. But it is cool to see it all in a glance. It gives you like a sense of the whole. That sense of the whole is important because um, our, it's how our brains work. You, if you buy anything, you buy you buy a, something from IKEA. The first thing you do, you like lay out all the parts. Do I have what is the scope of this thing? And you see, oh, okay, I've got all these parts. Now I'm going to start putting it together. Uh, and, and we do the same thing with any software product, you know. Let me see the whole of this thing. Okay, now I can get a sense of what it's about. Tom, what is the software that displays it when you click the button? This? Yeah. Uh, this could be, uh, this is probably Bootstrap or Zurb Foundation, some of these uh, just frameworks that are CSS and JavaScript based. Mm -hmm. Nothing special. If you want to make little interactive widgets in a very easy way, my recommendation is to just use something called Bootstrap. If you Google it, it's like ready-made ready web components that have all this stuff, and you just figure out how to use it, and you build your site with it. You don't have to invent all this from scratch. Um, I do a lot of the doc tooling for my group and in the App Store, and we totally use, uh, um, totally use Bootstrap. Uh, some web developers may think, ah, oh, that's cookie cutter and want to make things more unique, but it makes it a lot easier. Uh, another common sort of site or common sort of idea, uh, theme that you'll see are best practices. And this is broad, I realize, but you'll see things that are specific to APIs. Um, they may have best practices around pagination, like how do you get additional pages of results or time ranges or fault tolerance, cache values, connectivity, timeouts, downtime. Um, these will vary from API to API, but in general, most APIs that are robust have some kind of list of, hey, these are practices that developers should keep in mind, and so you, you would cover them. Um, so they're, they're mainly to show you how to use that API most effectively. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, things to avoid because you know that those are inefficient and that the much more efficient way is to do it this way. So yeah, forth. yeah, exactly, exactly. How to use the API more efficiently. And uh, th these are things that, that uh, it's sort of the, the documentation aspect of it. There's, there's no, not all APIs have to talk about fault tolerance. 
uh, or expanding resources and so forth. Um, but best practices are, are, are pretty common. Another huge one, again, going above and beyond the baseline, is to provide a glossary. I'm convinced more and more that like half of the problem of understanding technical things is the jargon and it's not knowing the language. And even when you're in the space, we get, we get um, numb to these terms that developers throw around. They, they talk about it long enough that everybody internally understands, but nobody externally understands. Um, I was documenting something. So I work in the app store, right, where people submit apps. And we have this tab in our UI that says binary files. And uh, everybody internally uses the term binary, binary, binary. And I'm like, is that the right term? And so I started to look at other app stores, mainly the Android one with Google. They don't use that term at all, really. I mean, if it's used, it's not in the same context. What they really want was APK. Executable. Yeah, the, the, the APK is your and, uh, Android program kit. Uh, I remember that. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's your app that you upload, right? Whereas binary could be any machine-readable sort of file. Well, the term binary is permeated, like, the whole group so much that you can't get rid of it. Like, it's stuck there. Um, and even though they're going to change, we're going to change the name from binary to APK, it's going to be this huge effort to try to change it internally. You know, I've, I've stripped it out of the documentation so, so people can't even refer to it. Um, and except for I have little notes that say, hey, in the UI, you'll see this older term we'll, that will eventually replace. Anyway, glossary is huge. Language really is, is a, a lot of the reason why people don't understand what's going on. Um, and that's just one example. So it's, it's also sort of a, a style sheet for you. Yeah, right? it, yeah. It makes sure you know which term to use for a particular thing. Exactly, exactly. And, and as you have your terms defined, there's less guesswork as a writer to know how to call it. You say the word media session in a tutorial. You don't have to guess, is that camel case? Is it two words? Is it capitalized? Is it lowercase? You know, that's another example. Um, all right, last one, FAQ. Now, an FAQ is, is not really specific to API documentation. Almost all sites have them. The reason I added this here is because there's a, um, maybe it's a pet peeve of mine with FAQs, but a lot of times when engineers start writing, they don't really have documentation. They just have an FAQ and they start adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. And pretty soon the whole documentation is an FAQ that's like 20 pages long. And yeah, made up the questions and nobody ever asked. <laughs> yeah, them. yeah. They're not really, they're not, they're not frequently asked. There's like our, our, pretend questions we think people should know. know. Anyway, um, but an FAQ can be helpful if you um, limit the responses to like a couple of sentences or a couple, maybe one paragraph and have a link to more information where that, that sort of issue is treated in more detail. Um, and, and there are some APIs that, that have FAQs. It, it really does serve a purpose if at a high level it's letting a user know what the most, most popular, the most trending sort of questions that users are asking actually are. Um, so anyway, these are, these are your 10 topics, or 11 topics that, that uh, your non-reference content could have. 
Um, it gives you something to think about beyond just, hey, what are the requests that we need to document? Um, any questions, thoughts? Uh, any any um, criticisms? <laughs> what, what, what percentage of your documentation work do you think this stuff is as opposed to reference docs? Um, as a me particularly as or as a writer general tech writer working in an API answer whatever question you like I would say <laughs> a general writer assigned to an API project or or a group that has an API probably spends the bulk of their time on this sort of information I, I hate to say this but typically when people draw lines about who does what you know what kind of content do engineers write versus tech writers well a lot of times the engineers write the reference because as Richard said it tends to be easier um, <laughs> it's already defined it's like not a blank page um, and they're working right very close they're working very closely with all of that information they know the parameters they know the responses and they put the stuff in the code yeah yeah okay. uh, whereas the tech writers work on the conceptual information the tutorials and so forth the reason I'm hesitant to draw that line is because I really think um, tech writers should should uh, document the endpoints using the open API specification and most engineers uh, don't do that already or if they do uh, there's no reason why a tech writer wouldn't want to equally contribute um, it's like the core of information you want to you want to be in that space as well me personally, I find myself in a in a situation where I'm working mostly with Android APIs, so not even web APIs. Um, and and most of the content that I'm writing is this non-reference content because the Android API or the Android reference doc already has a gazillion APIs. It's already got the reference information. Developers just need to know how they use that. Um, so we often explain, hey, here's how you you did it in your Android app for Google Play. Here's how you, ha here's how you have to modify it for Amazon. Um, what you have to do. You want to get your Alexa commands in, or you want to, you know, sell things or monetize it. That kind of thing. It's can use different services and different different APIs. So the the Android stuff is Java Docs, right? Uh, a lot of it. Yeah. But it's also it's more than that. I mean the it's, reference stuff. Yeah. It's uh, partly because on your phone, if if every time you used your phone had to make a request up to a certain web server and come back it would be way too slow and so a lot of the devices that they, they're gonna use built-in operating systems like Android where it installs on there um, I'm sure you've there, there's there's a category of web apps that do you know leverage all the web requests to get media and stuff and a lot of times they're slow uh, they're not native and so well, because they're not native they're not as fast and they got to make that extra trip um, and so that's why like native native apps tend to be more popular especially in like gaming categories you know you, you've got a lot of stuff going on in a game you need it fast all right so more information I'd rather be writing.com welcome to um, uh, follow me on Twitter or whatever you want and uh, be happy to answer any follow-up questions you have um, I guess I should have started out by asking, you know, like how many of you are involved in API docs or trying to get involved, but usually there's a range, so I sort of skip that. Did I see a hand go up over here? Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Any any last questions or any first questions?
Okay. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate well, you having you. me on. So this uh, is